O Lord God, who in a time of reviving your church did graciously kindle again the light of your saving word and let the light of the knowledge of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, shine in our hearts. Grant that we may always follow this blessed light and adorn the pure teaching of your word with the holiness of our lives and conversation. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And there it is. The more things change, the more they stay for the same. Help us to teach your word and then bend our lives and our word to fit it. So there you go. Okay. Um, thanks for everything last week. Thanks for your comments about service times. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. If I'd had a brain in my head, this would have been the Sunday to change things because your clocks are all goofed up anyway. But I didn't, uh, I didn't get that far along. Well, I'm perplexed now a little bit about what to do with the... Um, this, you know, this is one of those things where you have sort of an embarrassment of riches and then you don't really know what to do. Um, I only did half of the review I meant to do last week. And then we're already late this week. Next week we won't uh, meet because of uh, All Saints Day. We'll be even later. And then the week after, Arthur just is back and he's actually going to talk about Emmaus, uh, which, actually, which does in fact fit with the, what we're doing. So. I'm going to go, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to go. We'll see what happens. Whoops, sorry, David, thanks for your help. We're going to, uh, we're going to go and then just sort of see what happens. I, uh, I spend every waking minute thinking about you. I'm wandering through the Target at 9.30 last night thinking about you. Yeah, just what is the thing that, um, you know, makes community? And then uh, how is it that we could live in lives of gratitude. Uh, and then, uh, it's, you know, one of the joys is having, you know, people around. Um, Carla put this book by Henry Nouwen into my hands. It was one that I hadn't read before. And uh, we'll be reading that for Friday morning women's Bible study. So if you are uh, coming along or haven't come, this is a good time to check into the class. Um, this book by Nouwen with Burning Hearts. It's... Uh, it's not, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this. I know sometimes people don't come to class because they need to read. Uh, it is not difficult reading, but it is weighty in its own sense. So I wouldn't want that to put you off. Now, for you women who are in the class, there's a, already in the class, this book is waiting for you if you've not picked it up, um, above the mailboxes. If you can, you know, toss... 10 or 15 bucks toward us for that, that would be a nice thing. Uh, it's a very nice book. We couldn't get it in soft cover, but then when I got it, I see why. It's meant to be a devotional book, and it's uh, with artwork. And I read the first uh, two chapters last night, and it's as good as anything I've read in five years. It is a remarkable little thing. And it sort of fits what we're doing today. So I think what I'm going to do is, um, I think what I'm going to do is go a little bit I'm going to skim a bit of what I prepared for the day on this sheet. And then I want to read to you a bit from now on. And there's a reason I want to do that. Um, the bit that I chose from Colossians is a heavily doctrinal bit. And it is, uh, it gives you all the stuff. And if you're you know, theologically inclined or really digging into your scriptures or you want to know the order of things, 
the bit from Colossians is remarkable. But equally remarkable from another angle is how Malin picks up exactly the same thing, theme. And it's interesting how, you know, you, you sort of, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. You know, you sort of, you fall into things and then you realize it wasn't coincidence at all, but there's only a couple things in your life that you actually need to tend. And tending those, then everything comes together. And I want to see if I can suggest that to you. At the same time, I am uh, mightily concerned that people who chase this go so far beyond those who don't in the Christian life that they almost can't talk to each other. And I think you'll see why when we get to the now and bit. But first, um, pop open your Bibles to Colossians and let's see what's happening there, okay? So Colossians 2 is a good place to start. Now you remember what I'm chasing here is divine love as gratitude. And one of the things I'm most interested in Christians, and especially you Christians in this place, one of the things I'm most interested in, you can put it in a positive way and a negative way. The positive way is, um, I cannot believe how gracious and generous some of you are. I just am stunned by it. On the other hand, I am at times baffled why others of you, so blessed, are hardly generous or grateful at all. And I really think that, that gratitude, Eucharistia, as the scriptures say, which you immediately should hear as the Eucharist, but you hear it and then back off, because we have to go a ways to get there. I think the answer lies there. And uh, let's sort of just see what happens. Colossians 2, okay? Now what I'm going to do is, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to read through this just the way it lies here. Colossians 2, kind of 6 through 15, I suppose. Um, it's especially 6 and 7. Then I'm going to go back and read it in the order that I sort of broke it up for you, okay? This is um, so precise and so doctrinal as to almost be clinical. But it is uh, glorious if you, if you like, you know, all your ducks in a row. Okay, so Colossians 2, 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught, and overflowing with Eucharistia. It says thankfulness here, uh, or gratitude, okay? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, you're not put off, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Okay, see how this progression works. There's the other world, and then there's Christ. You were rescued from that other world, put your roots down in the Christ world, and don't look back. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
Okay, there it is, you see. Remember, that was the first thing we did is Christ is present. All the fullness of the deity, the second person of the Trinity, the divine life, is revealed in the person of the Christ fully. Okay, not part way, you know, not halfway, not half baked, half done. The full blast deal, everything you need to know, and everything that you could never know is revealed in Christ. And you have been given fullness in Christ, so you've been drawn along too who is the head over every power and authority, even though it may not seem like it. Tough world. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised you from the dead. This is very simple, basic stuff. There is a wicked world, and if you're in a wicked world, you are dead. Christ comes, the second person of the Trinity, in all his fullness, and rescues you. The great Bart quote today, a drowning man can't rescue himself by pulling himself out by his own hair. That's just brilliant stuff. So he rescues you and he brings you to a new land, the church, the community. And you're meant to put down your roots in that community deeply, in the way of Jesus, with love as works of mercy and love as words of mercy. And now, in gratitude to God, in thanksgiving. So you don't, you don't do works of mercy and words of mercy as if they were somehow an imposition on your life. You didn't have any life. So you were given a life and then part of that life, part and parcel, is to be generous, to read scripture, to say your prayers. Tell me, why are there fewer people in Bible study this year? Why is that? You tell me. Does it not matter as much as it did last year? On the cusp of the biggest thing we're ever going to do, why do fewer people seek God's blessing? You tell me. Because Bible study is just part and parcel of what people do. Why are fewer people at the altar? You tell me. On the cusp of the biggest thing you'll ever do, why are there fewer people surrounded around the gifts? Now, there's two possibilities. One is... Uh, there's a line in the sand, and there are people who simply choose for uh, less than full blastness. Okay, that's one possibility. Another possibility may be that we lack understanding or gratitude for all that the Lord is doing, that it does feel too much like an imposition, and that we, we say to ourselves, well, at least we had fish and cucumbers when we were in Egypt. That would be a horribly dangerous thing to do at this particular time in our lives. So with life together, it's desperately important that we know what we are doing and that we do that with gratitude because there is no other way to do it, okay? So Christ is present, I'm at point two here. Christ is present and Christ is given as a gift to you 
It is Christ who saves. Christ embodies everything that God is. You get the whole person of the Trinity, the parts you could know and understand, and the parts that you could never understand. And it's so important in verse 9 that you tend the fullness of the deity, and in verse 10, the fullness in Christ that's been given to you as a gift. There is no place in Scripture where it only talks about being saved. And the great lie of the American churches is that they simply, uh, if you're saved, then you can do and believe anything you want. This is nothing, could be more, nothing could be more insidious than that. Jesus never, ever speaks that way. To be a disciple is to have a rabbi full blast. To have Christ is to have the second person of the Trinity in fullness, you see. So it's not an option not to be at the supper. It's not an option not to be generous. It's not an option not to be busy in acts of mercy. It's not an option not to be able to give a good witness. And frankly, if you can't do that, you really have to ask questions about yourself, about whether or not you're in the church and whether or not you are the church. That is what the church does. And people who kvetch about that don't understand what the church is. Now, there are all sorts of reasons to kvetch about it. I get that. But this is what the church is, and it is non-negotiable. It is the fullness of Christ as a gift. And the great challenge is for us to be grateful for that rather than to feel somehow that the Lord is overextending us. Okay? This is part and parcel of baptism, Colossians 12. This happened at your baptism where you were died and resurrected. Go to 15. I actually didn't read this, but it's very nice. Where he taunts your sin. Isn't this great? You want to know what Jesus thinks about lack of generosity and lack of mercy and lack of community? Look at the cross. Those are the things he nails to this. He nails them to the cross and he taunts them as they go. Uh, Colossians 2. 13, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave our sins. He canceled the written cold with his regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away. He nailed it to the cross. And then the taunting. And having disarmed the powers and principalities and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. If you, well, the sins that entangle us so closely, well, I, I wonder if Jesus were here, if he would make fun of the things. I wonder if Jesus is sassy. I, I, wonder, I wonder if he were here, he'd say, well, I can't believe you're doing that, or only a moron would think that, or What's up with you? I thought you were a Christian. I just wonder if he would, you know. Because it says he taunts these sins and kills them. And that's what it says. He makes a spectacle of them, and then he kills them. Okay? So I suppose if you and I have sins, we should... And, and, you know, normally you say, well, sins, I'd just like to drop them out of my pocket. Well, okay, then drop them out of your pocket. Because if you don't, um, if they're sort of your pet sins, I mean, if you like to have them around and they are at your beck and your call, you know, and then the Lord comes up and he teases them and then shoots them, you know, you might feel moderately bad about that, which is why I'm always surprised when we say to people, be generous, be in church every Sunday. 
uh, be merciful. And people are sort of taken aback like that, as if you could be a Christian and not be those things. I'm always struck when people try to make a stand on their miserliness or on their lack of church attendance. Why, come twice a month. Well, I hope the Lord doesn't come back the other two Sundays. So you see, that's so easy. Isn't that so easy? I mean, it's just so easy to be a pain in the backside. It just is really easy. However, here it is in the Bible, so what are you going to do? All right? Sort of. All right. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them with his cross. You know, the thing is, I guess I wish, um, I guess the only teasing we could allow around here would be the teasing of people's pet sins. Hmm. That's probably dangerous to say. Uh, push on to the gospel. God made us alive, see? And then Colossians 2, 6. This is, I know I'm sort of spinning you, but this is just how the text goes. 2, 6. Continue to live in him. And that live in him is like the abide in him, which is, you know, it's a circle on the board. You live inside the fence. You live inside the church. He pulled you out of, the, he pulled you out of death. He put you into life. He pulled you out of the world. He put you into the church. Stick around. Live in it. As Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. It means stay put. It means stay put within the boundary. It doesn't mean you can't be creative. It doesn't mean that everybody walks in lockstep. It means that you rejoice in the gifts that the Lord is giving. Right? I mean, the, the people who, you know, it's a little like, you, you know, you, you've been on vacation where you try to stand in two states at one time. Yeah, well, that's impossible in the church. You're in or you're out. Okay? I know there are people who in or act like they're out, and there are people who out who act like they're in, but the honest to God truth is you're in or you're out. Um, there isn't any middle ground. See, so not everything is acceptable. There is a Christian life, and it really is composed of love and mercy. And it is marked by gratitude. We should be absolutely intolerant here of miserliness. We should be absolutely intolerant here of a lack of generosity. We should be absolutely intolerant here of a lack of mercy. The only reason we would tolerate it would be in the way of pastoral care to help people get over it, but to help people nurture it, to harbor it, to have it, to train it, to use it. Boy, that's the world. That is not the church. That is Satan. That is not the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So Christ, what does he do? He comes to embody us. This is verse 7. He comes, he roots us, he builds us, he strengthens us, and he gives the gift. And the moment you realize that this is happening to you, you live in, and I'm going to just move to number five, an overflowing, abundant, excelling life. This is what 2 verse 7 says says, okay? 2 verse 7 is, you're rooted up in him, you're built in him, you're strengthened in him, and you are overflowing with Eucharistia. Eucharistia. I'm toying with this as um, the theme for the capital campaign because there's so many components to it. You know, there's not much time, but I'm going to read you a little bit from now on. And I just... Uh, Here's the thing. Um, I'm going to read you this, and you can just kind of think it over. And for you women who are coming on Friday or who want to come, um, Friday morning we'll gloss this. 
okay, to talk about this. Okay. This little book is an attempt to speak to myself and my friends about the Eucharist and to weave a network of the connections between the daily celebration of the Eucharist and our daily human experience. We enter every celebration with a contrite heart and we pray, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. We listen to the word, we profess our faith, we give God the fruits of the earth, and in return, we receive from God the body and blood of Jesus. And finally, we're sent out into the world with the task of renewing the face of the earth. The Eucharistic event reveals the deepest human experiences, those of sadness, attentiveness, invitation, intimacy, and engagement. It summarizes the life we are called to live in the name of God. Only when we recognize the rich network of connections between the Eucharist and our life can the world be, can the world, I'm sorry, in the world, can the Eucharist be worldly and our life Eucharistic? Okay, so this is what I'm wandering around in a you know, department store trying to figure out how we could be more Eucharistic. Perhaps many of these dark losses, whatever losses there are in your life, he talks about losing children and losing parents and losing security. Many of these dark losses are far and away from most of us. Maybe they belong to the world of newspapers and television screens. But nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are part of our everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. We had thought so long of ourselves as successful, liked, and deeply loved. We had hoped for a life of generosity, of service, of self-sacrifice. We had planned to become forgiving, caring, and always gentle people. We had a vision of ourselves as reconcilers and peacemakers, but somehow, we aren't even sure how it happened. We lost our dream. We became worrying, anxious people, clinging to the few things we had collected and exchanging with one another news of political, social, or ecclesiastical scandals of the day. It is in this loss of spirit that it is often hardest to acknowledge and most difficult to confess. But in the midst of all this pain, there is a strange, shocking, yet very surprising voice. It is the voice of the one who says, blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. That's the unexpected good news. There is a blessing hidden in our grief. Not those who comfort are blessed, but those who mourn. Somehow in the midst of our tears, a gift is given. Somehow in the midst of our mourning, the first steps of the dance take place. Somehow the cries that well up from our losses belong to our songs of gratitude. This is how the journey starts. 
The question is whether our losses lead to resentment or to gratitude. Resentment is a real option. Many choose it. When we are hit by one loss after another, it is very easy to become disillusioned, angry, bitter, and increasingly resentful. The older we become, the greater is the temptation to say, life has cheated me. There is no future for me. There's nothing to hope for. The only thing to do is to defend the little life left so that I won't lose that too. Resentment is one of the most destructive forces in our lives. It is cold anger that has settled into the center of our being and hardened our hearts. Resentment can become a way of life that so pervades our words and actions that we no longer recognize it as such. I often wonder how I would live if there was no resentment in my heart. I am so used to talking about people I do not like, to harboring memories about events that gave me such pain, or to acting with suspicion and fear, that I do not know how it would be if there were nothing to complain about and nobody to gripe about. My heart still has many corners that hide my resentments, and I wonder if I really want to be without them. What would I do without these resentments? And there are many moments in my life in which I have the opportunity to nurture them. Before breakfast, I've already had many feelings of suspicion, jealousy, many thoughts about people I prefer to avoid, and many little plans to live my day in a guarded way. I wonder if there are any people without resentments. The tragedy is that much resentment is hidden within the church. It is one of the most paralyzing aspects of the church community. Still, the Eucharist presents another option. It is the possibility to choose not resentment, but gratitude. Mourning our losses is the first step away from resentment and toward gratitude. The tears of our grief can soften our hardened hearts and open us to the possibility of saying thanks. As long as we remain stuck in our complaints about the terrible times in which we live and the terrible situations we've had to bear and the terrible fate we've had to suffer, we can never come to contrition. And contrition can grow only out of a contrite heart. When our losses are pure fate, our gains are pure luck. Fate does not lead to contrition, nor luck to gratitude. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, must emerge from a contrite heart. Looking at our own life and the lives of those around us, we want to say, let's forget about it. It's all over. Oh, sure, we thought about a better world, imagined a new community of love and dreamt about a time in which all people would live together in peace. But the truth has caught up with us. We now know that this was all little more than an illusion. Our unchangeable character had persistent bad habits, our jealousies and our resentments, our moments of anger and revenge. Our uncontrollable violence, the 
countless signs of human cruelty, the crimes, the torture, the wars, the exploitation, all of these have surely woken us up to the bitter truth that our youthful hope has been crucified. And still, the other stories remain and continue to appear. Stories about a few people who saw it differently. Stories about gestures of forgiveness and healing. Stories about goodness and beauty and truth. And as we listen carefully to the deeper voices in our heart, we realize that beneath our skepticism and cynicism, there is a yearning for love, for unity and communion that doesn't go away even when there remain so many arguments to dismiss it. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. That prayer keeps emerging from the depth of our being and breaking down the walls of our cynicism. Yes, we are sinners, we are hopeless sinners. Everything is lost, nothing is left. Nothing left of our hopes and our dreams. But still there is a voice, my grace is enough for you. And we cry again for the healing of our cynical hearts and dare to believe that indeed, in the midst of our mourning, we can find a gift to be grateful for. But for this discovery, we need a special companion. So next time, Aeneas. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, our Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week for All Saints.